We do welcome each one to our adult Bible class this morning and those who may be watching online as well. And we trust the Lord would meet with us and bless us through his word and apply his word uh, to our hearts. Uh, we'll open in prayer and we'll seek the Lord, please. Our eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank thee afresh for thy day. We thank thee uh, for uh, this day that is set aside in our week, uh, set aside uh, by thy commandment uh, to come and to meet with thee. And Father, as we turn to thy word, uh, even throughout this day, may we know uh, thy blessing upon us. But especially now as we uh, delve again into uh, the inspiration of thy truth, uh, Father, we pray that uh, thou would apply these things to our hearts, Give us that high view, that high esteem for thy truth. And Father, we pray uh, that thou would be pleased uh, to be with us this day. Uh, bless us, we ask, and uh, meet our needs, and draw graciously near. Uh, we pray for the Savior's sake. Amen. Amen. We're going to uh, turn again this morning uh, to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and uh, then across uh, to the epistle of Peter. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and the verse 16 and the verse 17. And of course, we're con continuing in uh, our study of the Scriptures and dealing with the doctrine of inspiration. And as I said last Lord's Day, this is the key verse uh, concerning inspiration. And uh, the Word of God says, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And then 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 and the verse uh, 16. Sorry, second, uh, second Peter chapter 1 and uh, the verse 16. 2 Peter 1, the verse 16. And the Word of God says here, If we have not followed commonly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. And when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen. And may the Lord bless uh, the reading of his word uh, this morning. There is no doubt, as we have considered in the last uh, two occasions, that the word of God is necessary for us as it reveals God's plan of salvation and God's purpose for humanity. And the Bible is also necessary as the fixed and sure revelation of God to man 
because God no longer reveals himself in dreams and in visions. William Gouge, who was a member of the Westminster Assembly that uh, penned the Confession of Faith that we hold to, said that the pretense of new light or new revelation or new messages from God and immediate inspiration in these days is itself a mere pretense. George Walker was another member of that assembly, and he had, ha he had hard words for weak men who told ladies, and this actually happened in those days. It probably happens in this generation. It's not something that I did myself, uh, but it is something that uh, certainly uh, men have done. And this uh, minister had hard words for weak men who told ladies to marry them because of some pretense of inspiration that they had or divine revelation. He said, whether out of laziness or desperation, men should not try to push a woman a little closer to a wedding because God said they were meant for each other. In other words, God has said something extra to him. God has revealed something extra to him, not to the lady, but to him. And his point in this is that the sure word of revelation is given in Scripture. God is not revealing himself constantly and in fresh ways to all of us individually. His sure word is applied to us individually, but it is not a different word or a fresh word or a new word that is outside the Holy Scriptures. And as Peter reminds us, we have a more sure word from God than spoken or private utterances. And the doctrine of Scripture that we are considering and the doctrine of inspiration point to the settled and sure Word of God, not something that is fluid and in motion, like a river that moves down from the mountains that constantly changes and bends its way through the landscape, but something that is a sure foundation, like a rock to build upon. And it is important to get the doctrine of inspiration right. John MacArthur speaks of reading an interview with a popular songwriter many years ago, and he was asked to explain how he had penned a particular song, a Christian song. And he said regarding that song, it came out quickly, and we do not care to discuss the theology of it. In fact, we feel that to dis dissect the song would be tampering with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who inspired that song, etc., and that is certainly not the inspiration that we speak of when we refer to Scripture. We've mentioned that briefly in the past. Men talk about being inspired, being inspired by nature to pen music, to paint great works of art. But it shows much of the problem with modern music. Such writers actually don't understand as much theology as they should. The emphasis is on tunes and catchy words and emotions, not good theology and teaching. And therefore, when we come to uh, that particular interview and what was said, he is attributing inspiration of the Holy Spirit to that particular song. And that is completely different than the inspiration that we see the Word of God speaking about, the inspiration the Word of God claims for itself. It was the late Dr. Kearns who gave this definition of inspiration that we considered last Lord's Day. And he said that inspiration is the work of God 
by his Holy Spirit, communicating his word to the writers of the Bible and enabling them to write that word without error, addition or deletion. Thus, though fallible human penmen were employed, the Holy Spirit ensured the production of infallible writings, true in all respects, both as to their ideas and their words. These writings are, in the strictest sense, God's Word and are our final rule of faith and practice. And last Lord's Day, we consider the doctrine of inspiration, and firstly, that this doctrine is set forth in Scripture. It is a doctrine that is taught. God speaking in His Word, God speaking to men, inspiring them through the power of the Holy Spirit to write His Word, therefore Scripture being the very Word of God. This doctrine is set forth in Scripture. But I want to draw your attention this morning to a second thought concerning inspiration, that this doctrine has been believed by the church throughout the ages. This doctrine has been believed by the church throughout the ages. <coughs> Now, this heading brings us into a different sphere of theological thought. There are many branches of theology. When we think of systematic theology, we think of systematically setting forth the doctrines that we find in Scripture and not going from Genesis to Revelation and, and looking at what those doctrines are and how they come out, but rather taking the doctrine and looking at uh, what it teaches and what it means and what the Scripture says about it, and splitting those doctrines into categories. Bibliology, in which we are studying the doctrine of Scripture, is one of those categories. Anthropology, the doctrine of man. Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, coming from the Greek word for salvation. We've eschatology, coming from the Greek word for last things, which deals with that which is to come, the doctrine of last things. We've ecclesiology, again, coming from the Greek word for church, for assembly, dealing with the doctrine of the church. And so these doctrines are set forth in categories, uh, in classes, in, in different uh, topics and subjects for us to consider. But there's also pastoral theology, which deals with the practical application of theology to the life and work of Christ's church. And then there is historical theology. It is a blend of history and theology, very much two things that I love and enjoy, and they come together, and therefore I enjoy historical theology. It's a blend of history and theology where there is a study and an effort spent on considering how the church arrived at its various doctrines and what it understands and how that developed over the years. There is less of a focus upon the depths of expounding the doctrine itself. That's the job of systematic theology. And there's more of a focus on how that developed historically in Christian thought over the centuries. And so we come to consider somewhat briefly how the church has understood the inspiration of Scripture over the centuries. If we were to uh, look, for example, at other doctrines, for example, justification, we will see that originally the church believed what Scripture taught, what we believe today. Man is justified through Christ alone, through faith alone, etc. Uh, but in church history, that changed. And the Roman Catholic Church corrupted that doctrine. And so for a large part of church history, up to the time of the Reformation, uh, this doctrine had been corrupted, was understood in a wrong way, uh, there was much error concerning it. And then at the Reformation, 
uh, there was that great change in gospel light. And if we were to study justification, we would see that uh, there was this corruption. There was this then new light coming forth on this old truth. It was brought to the surface again through the power of God, working through the Reformers. And it is a doctrine that Protestant and Reformed churches hold dear. When we consider inspiration, there isn't really that kind of a change through its development in church history. The American theologian B.B. Warfield summed up historic Christian thought in this doctrine, and he said, nor do we need to remind ourselves that the attitude of entire trust in every word of the Scriptures has been characteristic of the people of God from the very foundation of the church. In other, <coughs> in other words, throughout history, men have wholeheartedly believed the Bible to be inspired. They have had some difference of opinion as to how that inspiration took place. Uh, but in regard to being inspired and being the Word of God, uh, there has not, in mainstream Christianity, uh, there has not been opposition to that. Of course, in the modern age, there are many errors concerning the Word of God in men's opinions. And uh, we can think of textual criticism and how uh, the uh, Word of God uh, has been attacked and the authority of it and the truth of it and what should be in Scripture and what should not be in Scripture and how men have uh, tried to bring God's Word down from being inspired and being true and being dependable and bringing it more in a, a level playing field uh, with the ideas of man. Uh, but in regard to inspiration, on the whole, it has been believed that the Bible has been inspired by God. Though there were differences of opinion as to the manner or method of inspiration, some have believed that God merely superintended the writings of men to make sure the production of Scripture was infallible. Just making sure nothing would go wrong. It would be like me going into the kitchen deciding I'm going to make a dinner, and I know what I'm going to make. I know how I'm going to cut the vegetables and marinate the meat and do everything. But my wife's looking over my shoulder, making sure I don't accidentally do something that will poison the food or blow up the kitchen or something like that. Superintending, keeping an eye, nothing goes wrong, but yet the work is all mine. Others have stated that the faculties of the writers were elevated to a higher than normal degree. In this case, it takes God somewhat out of the direct origin of Scripture. Their faculties, their abilities were, were elevated, and therefore the writing of Scripture uh, was more to do with the human author rather than God telling him and instructing him and inspiring him. Some have said that God merely suggested the content of Scripture by suggesting it in the minds of the authors. Some have defended what is called the mechanical uh, inspiration theory, uh, where men were like typewriters or keyboards by which God punched out what he, what he required Scripture to be. Others have stated that the manner and method of inspiration is a mystery that cannot be defined by man. And I think that is a good position to take. The method and the manner of inspiration cannot be defined by man. We can make an assumption uh, that in some way uh, God did guide them. Yes, He did. 
in some way, uh, there, there was uh, this supernatural uh, work at pl taking place. But it is a mystery that cannot be defined by man. And there are two terms that have been used to describe and define inspiration. They have a more modern origin, but they aptly describe the historical position of the Christian church regarding the inspiration of Scripture. Firstly, we have the term uh, plenary. And that term refers to all Scripture being given by inspiration. God was behind it all. His influence upon the writers was such that all Scripture is inspired and infallible without error. It is the Word of God from Genesis through to Revelation. The second word is verbal. And this term refers to inspiration extending to all the words in Scripture, all the expressions, everything. The Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 5, verse 18, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The jot in the Greek is the word iota. It's the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. It corresponds to the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The word tittle is believed to mean a little stroke that distinguishes one letter from another. And so the Savior here is emphasizing that all of Scripture is inspired, and he's saying that even the tiniest, the most in the mind of man, the most insignificant strokes are important and shall not pass away until all is fulfilled. And so those two terms, plenary and verbal in Reformed theology, denote the position that everything, even down to the letters, has been inspired by God, and the Holy Spirit, in a supernatural way, used His chosen authors to write down God's revelation to mankind. There are several periods in church history I want us to delve into just briefly to consider what some men said about inspiration. Some men will be quoted, but that does not necessitate an endorsement of everything they say. Uh, we'll consider some of the early church fathers, and uh, while uh, they did believe in the inspiration of Scripture, there are other doctrines that they were off on, and some of their teachings uh, led into what the Roman Catholic Church uh, believed. Uh, but of course, uh, that uh, that is quite deep for us to go into and to uh, consider each man individually and what they believed and how orthodox they really were. Uh, but the purpose of this is to show that there were men in the early church and moving on into the period of Luther who certainly did believe that the Scriptures were inspired. Clement of Rome uh, spoke about the church of Corinth and said that you've searched the Scriptures which are true, which were given by the Holy Spirit. Justin Martyr, perhaps a more well-known uh, church uh, father, attributed the ability of the prophets uh, to foretell the future to be the spirit of prophecy, who inspired them, for they only spoke those things which they saw and heard, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Oregon said that the Scriptures themselves are divine. They were inspired by the Spirit of God. It's interesting to note that an Irish philosopher, theologian, who's, who had a major work that was 
described as swarming with worms of heretical perversity, said in a prayer, O Lord Jesus, no other reward, no other blessedness, no other joy do I ask than a pure understanding free of mistakes of your words, which were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I find that interesting because there were those who found themselves in great error and recorded in church history as being those who promoted error. But yet when it came to Scripture being divine, they were orthodox. They were orthodox. It's another quotation here, another statement. The author of Holy Scripture is God. Nobody here disagrees with that. The author of Holy Scripture is God. But that statement itself is intriguing because of who said it. It was a Roman Catholic theologian, Thomas Aquinas. The Roman Catholic Church had set aside and have set aside the application of the doctrine of inspiration in the life and work of the church of Christ. They've added the ideas and beliefs of mere men to the inspired words of God. Yet one of the prominent theologians from many centuries ago comes out with a statement that is orthodox and points to inspiration. The author of Holy Scripture is God. And there's a warning here that even those who are swimming deep in theological error and heresy can still proclaim some truth. That does not justify what they say. That does not justify the error that they teach. But there's a warning that there can be error hiding behind that which is good and that which is true. We'll come back to that in a moment. John Wycliffe, one of the uh, early reformers, spoke about the Word of God. God and His Word are all one, and he said they may not be separated. At the time of the Reformation, the issue of inspiration was not a disputed matter. The disputed matter was the authority of Scripture seen in the Reformation fundamental, sola scriptura, Scripture alone. That was where the issue was. Inspiration by God was believed, but the application of that, how we apply that to our lives, the truths that flow from that, like the authority of Scripture, those things were in dispute. One of the Reformers said that Scripture cometh not first from man, but from God, and therefore God is to be taken for the author of it, and not man. Hugh Latimer preached before King Edward VI in March 1549. He said, The excellency of this word is so great and of so high dignity that there is no earthly thing to be compared unto it. The author thereof is great, that is God himself, eternal, almighty, everlasting. The Scripture, because of him, is also great, eternal, most mighty, and holy. Dear believer, we need to understand that because when we think of inspiration— and the whole purpose and point of looking at inspiration is to see what Scripture is. And if our attitudes towards Scripture need to be refreshed, need to be changed, need to be rebuked, need to be corrected, then we must seek the help of God to do so. The Scripture, because it is of God, because it is inspired, is great, eternal, it is mighty, it is holy, and therefore for us we must abide by it. We must love it. We must treasure it. 
William Whitaker was well known for his work on the disputation of Holy Scripture. I have a copy in a container in Northern Ireland, and I didn't go back to get it uh, for this series. But it is an extensive work on the subject of Scripture by an English reformer. And he says in that, again, emphasizing, Scripture hath for its author God himself, from whom it first proceeded and came forth. And he speaks about the authority of God being upon Scripture. These were men who were orthodox. These were men who knew what the Word of God was. Martin Luther made many passing references to the divine authorship of Scripture and believed it to be the Word of God. He said, we attribute to the Holy Spirit all of Holy Scripture. John Calvin, again, had uh, the same uh, view that Scripture was inspired by God. And the Reformers, <coughs> they emphasized continually Scripture alone is their only rule of faith and practice. Their doctrine was directly taken from Scripture, and that caused conflict. It caused conflict with the Roman Catholic Church because they, despite believing in the inspiration of Scripture, had weakened its authority, its position, its accessibility, its interpretation within the life of the church and throughout the nations of Europe. And you may say, well, how can that happen? If you believe God's Word is inspired, then how can you weaken its authority and its position and its accessibility in the life of the church and to everyone, if you truly believe that. That is why, dear believer, we must not only, well, our confession of faith, what we believe Scripture teaches, what we believe ourselves regarding Scripture, it's not merely words. We're to believe it with our hearts, and we are to practice it. And here we find the Roman Catholic Church in words, in what they said they believed. They believed the inspiration of Scripture, but in how they practiced that, in how it went forth in the life of the church. And of course, may, in the Roman Catholic Church, there were issues with justification. Therefore, straight away, uh, the clergy were outside of Christ and unconverted, and that was one of the issues. But the Word of God was not practiced. The inspiration of Scripture was not practiced. Yes, we believe to it. We believe in it, but we need to practice it. And that is why, historically, historically there is that phrase that the Scripture alone is our only rule of faith, what we believe, and practice what we do. What we do. And so for the Reformers to hold a return to the principle of Scripture alone not the traditions of the church, not the ideas of man or the ideas of the pope, but Scripture alone, returning to that principle, believing it and practicing it, was the cause of conflict. And Scripture alone is the direct consequence of inspiration. If Scripture is inspired by God, if it is infallible, if it is inerrant, if it is our only rule of faith and practice, then it is the foundation, the only foundation of all that we believe and all that we do. God's truth must be proclaimed in the world through vocal preaching, through written preaching, through the reading of the written Word. 
And many reformers gave their lives in horrific deaths because they believed their countrymen must have access to the revelation of God contained in Scripture. That was something the Roman Catholic Church was limiting. The accessibility of God's revelation to the world. And again, if you believe in inspiration, how can you limit that message? And say to the ordinary person, the ordinary worker, the commoner, you can't have access. The priests, the bishops, they have access to the copies, but you don't. And just as the Roman Catholic Church had departed from Scripture, so we see today many churches departing from Scripture. Many churches that, yes, the Bible is the Word of God, but we're going to practice other things. And we see that in nations today, nations that still claim something spiritual, nations that still claim the name of God. There are national anthems today, Canada's anthem, the anthem of the United Kingdom, who in a prayer refer to God. God, keep our land glorious and free. God, sa God save God save the king. God save the, I think everyone's hesitating over that right now. Uh, God save the king, uh, because most of our lives were used to God save the queen. God save the king. The fourth verse of O Canada that is not widely known today, certainly not sung. Ruler supreme who hearest humble prayer. Hold our dominion within thy loving care. Help us to find, O God, in thee a lasting rich reward, as waiting for the better day we ever stand on God. God, keep our land glorious and free. O Canada, we stand on guard for thee. Over the years, it's been suggested that it be changed, that we keep our land glorious and free, because, as people will say, that's our job. And in some nations... Uh, there is still this clinging to the idea of God. In the anthems, we see that. Maybe out of mere tradition. Whenever uh, King Charles III will have his coronation next year, well, I think various faiths will be involved. But there will be an element from the Church of England, an element that is religious and biblical, an element that is supposedly uh, from the Reformed side of the Reformation, although far from what we would understand the Reformed Church to be. But it's mere tradition. God's Word is rejected. His teachings are rejected. And whether it's in the church, whether it's in the world where they claim something of the name of God, we as believers who believe in the inspiration, believe in the Word of God, we are to shine forth the glorious light of the gospel by our words, by our deeds. And there's a great warning here that you can adhere to the doctrine of inspiration, even say, I believe it. Whether you do or not, it's another thing. But you can fail to practically apply it in your life and in the life of the church. And many, as we've said regarding the nation, will claim something of God, something of religion for a nation, but yet the laws of that nation are far removed 
from God. If God were taken seriously, his word that has been inspired by him will be taken seriously. You can't separate the two. God's word and God. God inspired, he breathed out his word. And therefore, if we claim anything of God, if we claim to follow God, if we claim to pray to God, whether it's to keep our land glorious and free or to save the king or whatever it might be, we can't separate those things from the word of God and from the commandments of the Lord and from the rule of his word. Moving into the 17th century, just very briefly, the Westminster Confession of Faith had this to say about the Scriptures. In chapter 1 and section 2, it speaks about Holy Scripture, or the Word of God written, and it goes on to give uh, the list of all the books that uh, we hold to, the 66 books of the Bible, all which it says are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. Section 3 speaks about the Apocrypha that's not part of divine inspiration, and it is not part of the canon of the Scripture, and therefore of no authority in the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. In other words, those books, the Apocrypha, it's not part of the inspired Word of God. We're not to use it. We're not uh, to read it. We're not to preach from it. If you want to read it out of interest, if you want to read it to see the history, as you would other human writings, that's your decision. But it is not to be made use of from a spiritual aspect. And that was one of the reasons why the King James Version of the Scriptures was actually rejected by many of the Puritans back uh, in uh, the early 1600s because it included the Apocrypha. Uh, they used uh, the Geneva Bible at that time, and then eventually the authorized version came out without the Apocrypha, and the rest, the rest is history. Uh, but originally, uh, many of the Puritans uh, had nothing to do with it because it contained the Apocrypha. And I have a copy, again, in a shipping container that's a reprint of a 1611 edition uh, that has that in the middle. I've never read it. I've never used it. Uh, but it has that. It's a, a commemorative edition. Section 4 of the Confession, chapter 1, says, The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself. The author thereof, and therefore it is to be received, because it is the Word of God. B.B. Warfield, the American theologian, said this about this chapter in our confession. There is certainly in the whole mass of confessional literature no more nobly conceived or ably wrought out statement of doctrine than this chapter, placed at the head of their confession and laid at the foundation of their system of doctrine. And that's important because when we consider the confession of faith, it takes what Scripture says, it sets forth the doctrines of Scripture as a confession of what we believe or what we hold to. And therefore, at the very commencement, it states what we believe concerning Scripture. Why? Exactly what B.B. Warfield said. It's laid at the foundation of their system of doctrine. Our doctrine, our beliefs, how we do things, it's all founded upon Scripture. Scripture is that foundation. It is that foundation. 
One of the uh, Scottish uh, ministers, David Dixon, who's associated, I believe, with the Westminster Assembly, uh, penned a book on the confession, and he asked numerous questions in that book about the confession of faith and the doctrines. And on this chapter, he asks the question, are the Holy Scriptures most necessary to the church? We've touched on this already. Uh, but he says, yes. And then the question is said, well then, does not the Popish church err that affirms the true church to be infallible in teaching and propounding articles of faith both without and against Scripture, and that their unwritten traditions are of divine and equal authority? This is what the Catholic Church says, equal authority with the canon of Scripture. The inspired Word of God and the traditions of men are of equal authority. And he says, yes, it's an error. It's an error. And he goes on to say that Scripture is the foundation upon which the church is built, not the ideas of men, the Scripture. He says, all things would be examined by the rule of the Word, as the Bereans did in Acts 17. He said, unwritten traditions are subject and liable to many corruptions and are soon and quickly forgotten. How true that is, even in our own lives, we can have traditions and things we do, and we soon forget them. We soon forget them. There are things we used to do. I think of my brother and my cousins, and we used to play a particular game every New Year's Day when we came together. I don't think we've done that for about 10 years. Time has moved on. We don't do that anymore. It was a tradition we had for many, many years, and it's went by the wayside. And in the church as well, unwritten traditions are subject and liable to many corruptions and are soon and quickly forgotten. God's Word is sure. He says, because we have life eternal in the Scriptures, therefore they are most necessary. And then he quotes 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, because the Scriptures are given that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished to all good works, and the Scriptures are written that men may believe. Therefore, Scripture is necessary to the church. The church cannot exist without Scripture. It is the church's duty to preach Scripture, to set forth Scripture. And this is what is taught and what we see in church history. There's much more could be said. Much more could be said. But thirdly, I want you to consider just very briefly that this doctrine is the foundation of glorious truths concerning Scripture. We've touched on this already, but the doctrine of inspiration is the foundation of glorious truths concerning Scripture. God inspired His Word. We have here in front of us then a translation of the Word of God that was given to those authors as they wrote it down and as they were inspired. And if Scripture is divinely inspired, then it has glorious attributes and glorious purposes. It's infallible and inerrant. It is without error. It has a divine veracity. That means truth. There's a truth within it. God is truth, and therefore the Scripture is truth. There's a divine authority because God is the author. Nowhere do we find God in Scripture giving men the authority to add to Scripture. That torpedoes the traditions of men. Christ rebukes such things in the Pharisees holding to the laws of men. Scripture is our final authority. It is a divine sufficiency. 
It is all that we need. There's a divine clarity. It is clear. It is necessary. There's a divine unity. There's a united message pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a divine efficacy. It is effective and perfect in its purpose that points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of those things we'll consider at a future point individually. But there are many great truths that flow from the fact God has inspired His Word. And then fourthly and finally, this doctrine is not optional. This doctrine is not optional. I like to think that in all that we've said last week and this week, that you've come to that conclusion yourself if you didn't already know that and believe that. The doctrine of inspiration is not optional. It is not one of those doctrines that we should decide, well, should we believe it or should we set it aside because it's unimportant? I think I should say uh, there are no doctrines we should really do that with. And certainly inspiration, it is not optional. It is not optional. It is a doctrine that is necessary. It's necessary to the church. It's necessary for your salvation. It's necessary for your Christian life. If God did not inspire His Word, then where did Scripture come from? Why is Scripture so important? Or is it even important? If it does not have that divine seal and stamp upon it, can it be trusted? Does it have authority? Is it all that we need? And question after question starts to come. And we're lost. Why? Because the foundation has been torn apart. God inspired His Word. Therefore, there's that sure foundation. It is ultimately our only rule of faith and practice. And therefore, let us rejoice that by the grace of God, we live a life for Him founded upon His Word. We worship Him founded upon His Word. If Scripture is inspired, which we believe it is, let us obey that message. Let it be our final rule of faith and practice. Let it be our ultimate standard for our conduct. Let it be a sure foundation for our faith. Let it be a book that prospers us as the people of God. Queen Victoria was apparently once asked the secret of Great Britain. And she took down a Bible and said, that explains the power of Great Britain, the Word of God. And at that time, there were many who did believe that was the time in which Spurgeon was exercising his ministry in London. Uh, we uh, can think of many missionaries and others who were sent out. The Word of God was faithfully preached throughout the land today. There is much of a dearth, much of a barrenness. If we desire to live for God, to glorify Him, the Shorter Catechism says about our purpose in life, our chief end, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God means we live according to His Word, not our ideas. His Word, because it is inspired by Him. It is His truth for us to live by. It is His truth that points us and others to salvation. And therefore, let us live by, let us seek to 
present that word, to proclaim that word, to preach that word to others. Because just as the inspired word of God is vital and necessary for us, it's vital and necessary for all mankind to consider and to listen and to obey. And let us, by our lives, by our words, by our conduct, live out the doctrine of inspiration. And let us point men and women to the Word, the written Word of God's revelation to man. May they believe it, and may they see much of Christ, and may He be their Savior. And the Lord bless our time this morning for His name's sake. Amen. And let us pray. Eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy precious Word. Uh, we thank Thee for Scripture and for the inspiration of Scripture. And uh, we thank Thee that even through history we can see that a man of God believed that Thy Word was inspired by Thee. And uh, we can see, though, even in recent years, how many have denied that fact. But, Father, we pray that despite man turning aside from thy word and man criticizing thy word and attributing not a divine aspect to it but a human aspect, Father, we pray for grace and courage to stand true, uh, to not only uh, say that thy word is inspired, but to believe it in our hearts, to practice it in our lives, uh, that we as believers hold to and live by the inspired revelation of God to us. And Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. And we thank Thee that as we come to worship Thee today in a few moments' time, we are not coming to consider some new thing, some new idea that has been dreamed up by man recently, but we come to consider what in Thy purpose and I will, thou didst write down for us through thy spirit many, many years ago. And Father, we pray thou would bless thy word to our hearts this day and do us good. And we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.